0: I want you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Matthew 1, 22. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I'm going to have the scriptures behind me on the screen. We're beginning a series today that's going to take us all the way through Christmas Eve. We're calling Songs of Our Savior. Now, I've wanted to do a series like this for a really long time, and I've just never done it. Because it hit me a few years ago that the hymns of Christmas, and I'm not talking about Christmas songs, not like jingle bells and stuff, I'm talking about the hymns of Christmas are some of the most beautifully written and most theologically rich songs, in my opinion, worship songs in the history of the world. And what happens though is Christmas rolls around and we start singing Christmas songs like we just did and we start singing lines like veiled in flesh, the Godhead sea, Hail the incarnate deity pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And we sing those songs and we just go through the motions of singing those songs not realizing that maybe outside of the scripture, that is the greatest articulation of the gospel in the history of the world. And yet we go through the motions. And so my, my hope is that as we go through these few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take one song. I'm going to look at the biblical foundations of it and the theology of it and unpack it. At the end of the sermon, we're going to sing the song in the hopes that it's going to draw you into the Christmas story in a fresh and a powerful way, in such a way that it doesn't just get you to a place where you wanna sing a Christmas song, but that you wanna worship God for everything that he's done in our lives. First song we're gonna look at is a song that's uh, it's one of my favorites, it's not my favorite, but it's one of my favorites, it's called O Come, O Come Emmanuel. It was written about 1200 years ago in Latin by some monks who would sing it um, about a week before Christmas. An anticipation uh, and reminder of the longing that they felt for the Lord to come into this world at the first advent, the first arrival of Christ. Now to get our minds around the song, let's look at the first line together, the title of the song. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now to understand really the heart behind the song, I think it's important that you understand the meaning of the word Emmanuel. It's actually a name. Of Christ. You know, Emmanuel, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful. It's one of the most powerful names of Jesus. Emmanuel simply means God with us. God with us. Matthew 1 22. It says, And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means "God with us." Now in his gospel, John explained why that name, God with us, Emmanuel is given to Jesus. And John 1:14, don't turn there, just watch John 14. he's describing this reality, and he says, "And the word, that's Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, guys, that's a name that reminds us that God didn't just sit up in heaven and fold his arms and passively orchestrate human history, but that what God did is he literally chose to physically step into human history. Emmanuel, God with us is a name of Christ that reminds us that the all-powerful creator of the universe was born as a human baby into the world that he created. It's incredible. Emmanuel, God with us. There's another part of the title that helps us understand the meaning of the song. Words, o come. O come. It's a pleading, o come Emmanuel. Now listen to me carefully. Don't miss this. Those are words that describe the condition of the hearts of the people of God before Jesus showed up on the scene. Those are words that describe the hearts, the condition of the hearts of the people of God before Jesus arrived on the scene. Oh, come, oh come, Emmanuel is a cry of anticipation. Oh come, Emmanuel is a cry, a desperate cry of longing for God to finally come to us, and to save us like he promised us that he would. You see, guys, check this out. On this side of history, on our side of history, it's easy to forget that the birth of Christ came after centuries and centuries and centuries of waiting and longing and anticipation. How long did the people of God wait for Christ to show up? They, they waited a long time. Because the first echoes of Christmas, the first echoes of the coming of a Savior, a Messiah, were all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, right at the beginning of creation, Satan enters into the picture. He deceives Adam and Eve, gets them to eat of the fruit. They sin, death enters into the world, and God speaks to Satan. He looks at Satan, he says, hey, because you've done this, there's coming a day where a baby is gonna be born of a virgin, and he is going to, Crush your head. It's gonna destroy your rule and reign and restore the people of God back to their heavenly father. That was the promise of God, the promise of Christmas all the way back in Genesis three. And then centuries would go by and as centuries went by, God would raise up prophets and he'd raise up priests and he'd raise up kings and they would speak to their generation about this promise of God that he was gonna send a savior unto God's people. But here's what would happen. Generation after generation after generation would hear that promise and they would live their entire lives and they would die waiting in anticipation for God to finally show up and make everything right like he promised he would. So, oh, come, oh, come. Oh, God, would you please come and be with us? are words that remind you and I that you and I get to experience a reality that generations of the people of God longed and anticipated to experience, but they never got to. Okay, think about it. If you, uh, if you have your Bible, and you go to, don't do this, but if you go to Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament, And the prophet Malachi in the end of chapter four says that, hey, you need to understand something. God's coming to us. And when he comes, he's gonna make everything right. And then all you have to do is flip the page. And you flip the page. And that took about one second to Matthew chapter one, where you hear of the arrival, the coming, the birth of Christ. And because of that, we forget that that page flip right there that took us one second was a period of time of about 400 years. Four centuries, the last time a prophet of God spoke about the coming of the Messiah, and then 400 years of total silence where the people of God waited generation after generation after generation, patiently waited for God to fulfill his promise. And as they waited, you can almost hear their questions. Where is God? Has he left us? Has has he forgotten us? When is he finally going to show up? and bring the Savior to this world like he promised us that he would. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, be with us. Our words that remind us, listen, of a central theme that runs from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, and that is this. It's the theme of longing. It's the theme of anticipation for God to fulfill his promises by showing up, bringing the Savior, and making everything right. And so let's take a minute here, and let's talk about this idea or this theme of anticipation that's all through the Old Testament, right? I've got a definition of the word anticipation for you. The definition of anticipation is the longing or the expectation of the fulfillment of a need or desire, okay? Leave that up there for a second. Anticipation always starts with a need, Anticipation always starts with a need. Longing always begins with a need or desire. And so anticipation is the longing. It's the expectation of the fulfillment of that need or desire. And so I wanna tell you real quick kind of a funny real life story about what real life anticipation looks like. Um, Jennifer and I got married 25 years ago. And before Jennifer and I got married, Can I say this? Um, We waited to consummate the marriage until the wedding night, right? Y'all tracking with me on that? Do I need to go into more detail? Y'all understand what I mean? We waited until our wedding night to consummate the marriage. So we dated for about four years before that. And so to be totally honest with you, I was tired of waiting. Amen? I, I was tired of waiting. I was most assuredly anticipating my wedding night. And so we did the wedding thing, and that was great. And, um, and then we went <laughs> to the reception. And we got to the reception, and we did the arm thing. Of course, it was with uh, sparkling grape juice because we're good Southern Baptists. And then, and then we cut the cake, and, <clears throat> and then we, uh, we had our first dance because we're not that good of Southern Baptists. And so we danced together, and then we danced with our you know moms and dads and stuff and, and all that. And we ate a little bit. And, and hung out for a little while. And, and not too long after that, I looked at Jennifer and I was like, hey, it's, it's time to go. It's time to go. I've, I'm just letting you guys know, I've never understood these guys that want to dance and stuff till the wee hours of the morning at their reception, right? Because I was ready to go. And I mean, I have got the wedding ring on my finger, baby. I mean, we are legal. And the sight of God... And in the sight of man, you know, the scripture says that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Well, I have I had done the leaving and I was ready for some cleaving, if y'all understand what I'm saying. And so we were, we were walking out. We were walking out. And the wedding photographer, true story, I'm gonna show you proof of this in just a second. But the wedding photographer stepped in front of us and he said, Hey, 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 check this out. I just I have a, a few more pictures that I need to take and I looked at him and I said dude get out of my way (laughs) I said get out of my way no more pictures no more songs we're leaving and he said no 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 you don't understand this is just going to take a second and I looked at him and said no man you don't understand you don't understand get out of my way and Jennifer's like hey baby just real sweet he said please let's just take a couple more pictures and so I sat down in a chair and we took this picture right here I think my face says it all there. (laughs) I got up from the chair, I was feeling a lot better about life. We walked out, they chunked rice at us or whatever, and then we took one final picture on the way out the door, and as you can see on my face that I'm in a lot better mood. (sighs) The longing or the expectation of the fulfillment of a need or a desire. That is anticipation, right? Sagemont, the Christmas story is ripe with anticipation. The first Christmas night is the culmination of centuries and centuries of waiting and longing for God to finally show up on the scene. Not only to save us from our sin, but also, listen, to meet the deepest needs of the human soul. I think that brings us to a pretty, uh, pretty important question today, like what is the deepest need of the human soul? What is the deepest longing, don't, don't shout it out, but what is the deepest longing of the human soul? Well, what's interesting is that question is a question that's not just talked about in church, not just asked in church, it's a question that's talked about in secular philosophy, That's a question that's asked in scientific circles. And here's why it's talked about in those secular circles. Because it's a proven fact that every human being that's ever lived, listen, has within them this deep, unspoken longing for something. All right? You have it. I have it. Every person that's ever lived has it. It's an internal yearning and longing for something. And because those secular circles all admit that it's in all of us, there's this huge debate is what the source of that longing is. Where does it come from? The non believing scientific community says, well, it's a, it's a fluke of evolution. As humans, we've, we've evolved. And since all of us seemingly have these wishes that we need to, and desire to be fulfilled, they've even come up with a name for it. It's called wish fulfillment because scientists admit that it's inside of us. They think it's this accident, a result of evolution. And you and I have all felt it at different times. Maybe you weren't aware that you were feeling it, but you were feeling it. You see something, you experience something, and then all of a sudden, there it is. Starts bubbling up inside of you. I remember one time I felt it on the side of a mountain. So on the side of a mountain in the Rockies, there was this lake down below me And the sun was coming up on the other side of the valley over the mountains on the other side, on the other side of the lake. And as the rays of light started peeking up over the mountain, these rays started coming down into the valley and they were hitting down below the aspen tree leaves. You ever seen aspen trees? They're beautiful. And the light hits these shimmering aspen tree leaves and the light is glimmering with brilliance. I am seeing these colors that I've never seen before in my life, and I didn't even know they existed, and then all of a sudden, there it is. This longing, this anticipation starts bubbling up inside of me, and something deep inside of me is crying out that there is more than I know. There's more than I'm aware of. There's more that I was created to experience. I've felt it at times, worshiping God. I've felt it at times, at the birth of my children, I've, I've felt it at the loss of loved ones, at funerals, things like that. It's this yearning inside of me. It's this longing inside of me that's screaming out that I was created for more than I'm experiencing. Well, scientists say that's a random fluke of evolution, but the scripture says a very different story. Ecclesiastes, don't turn there, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us exactly where that longing comes from. This is exactly where it comes from. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, listen carefully. It says, God placed eternity in the hearts of man. There's your answer. God placed eternity in the hearts of man. What the scripture is teaching us here is that longing. It's not the result of some random act of evolution, but that is a longing of the human soul for God. It's the longing of the human soul for God. The reason that longing and that anticipation is in you and it's in me is because God put them in you and me. And listen, he put them in you and me so that we would turn to him, the eternal God of the universe, and have all those eternal longings satisfied in him. And that's the miracle of the Christmas story. That's the beauty of the Christmas story because of Christmas, listen, because God came to us in the flesh. Now we can take all those longings. We can take all those yearnings. We can take all that anticipation and we can come to him and bring them to him and say, God, would you meet me here? Would you meet me here? Would you show up in power in my life? And would you touch me? in the deepest places of my heart that only you can touch. Oh, come. Oh, come. Emmanuel, God, please, please come and be with us is the desperate cry of a human soul that has finally come to the realization that this world will never satisfy me. As long as I look, as hard as I try, this world will never satisfy me and that God, you, and you alone can meet the deepest longings of my heart. So, oh Lord, would you please come and be with me and do what you promised you would. I wanna start landing the plane today by telling you a story about a woman that came to that realization. Story in the Old Testament about a woman. Her name was Leah. In my opinion, the story of Leah is hands down one of the most powerful stories in the entire scripture, and you'll see why I say that in just a second. But centuries before Jesus ever showed up on the scene, through the story of Leah, we learn that when you look to man, when you look to the world to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, it'll never work. But if you turn your gaze upon the Lord, for him to meet those longings and satisfy those deepest places in your heart, then he will show up in power and we'll meet you there and satisfy you in ways that you never dreamed were even possible. And we're gonna start in Genesis 29, 20, if you wanna turn there, Genesis 29, 20. Before we go to the text, let me give you some background. Story begins with a man named Jacob. He was Abraham's grandson, right? God promised Abraham, through one of your line, the whole world's gonna be blessed. Well, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's a guy in this story. Through a series of events, Jacob fell in love. Listen carefully. Jacob fell in love with a girl named Rachel. He was at a well one day. Jacob was at a well. He was watering his camels, and at the well, he saw her. And she was beautiful. She was a knockout. She was stunning. And... Uh, When he saw her, he fell madly in love with her. So Jacob came to Rachel's dad, whose name was Laban. Jacob came to Rachel's dad, Laban, and said, Laban, can I marry your daughter, Rachel? And um, that presented a problem. That presented a problem. Because Laban actually had two daughters. Rachel was his youngest daughter, who was gorgeous. Scripture says she was beautiful in face and in form. She was a knockout. Rachel was beautiful, but she was the youngest daughter. Laban had an older daughter, his oldest daughter, and her name was Leah. She was not as beautiful as Rachel. Now, the problem was Jacob didn't want to marry Leah. He wanted to marry Rachel. But in that culture, you always gave the older daughter to be married first. And so Jacob would have, or rather Laban would have desired for Leah to be married first, not Rachel. But Jacob didn't want to marry Leah. He wanted to marry Rachel. So Laban relented and told Jacob he could marry Rachel on one condition, that Jacob served Laban for seven years. And after seven years, he could marry youngest daughter, Rachel. And that's where we jump in at Genesis twenty-nine twenty. Says so, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love he had for. Her. He's just in love, just serving, waiting for him to marry Rachel. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, that I may go into her for my time has completed. And so Laban said, okay. And they had a wedding. And after the wedding, Jacob went into the wedding chamber, went to his room that night, and he waited for Rachel to join him finally after seven years on the wedding night. But as Jacob waited for Rachel, something crazy happened, something insane happened. And one of the Craziest, most insane places in the whole Bible, Laban planned this evil, insane act of deception. And instead of sending Rachel into Jacob, Laban sent Leah into the bedroom instead of Rachel. Now here's the crazy part: is that Jacob didn't realize it till the next morning. Now, like, how does that happen? How does that happen? I don't know. I believe the Bible. I think um, it's probably dark. Um, I'm guessing Leah's face might have been covered. I'm thinking that Jacob, solid chance, he was, uh, had drank a little bit too much from the reception. But without realizing it, he sleeps with Leah, who passes out, he wakes up the next morning and, and dude gets the shock of his life. Gen- uh, Genesis 29, 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Well, Laban tells him. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So he stays, he serves seven more years, he eventually marries both of them, but here's the thing you need to hear. Is that because of that one act of deception by Laban, Jacob not only kind of grows to not like Laban, but the scripture actually says that Jacob hated Leah. He hated her. He couldn't stand her. Now I want you to imagine for a second what that must have been like for Leah. What that whole thing must have been like for poor Leah. Leah has spent her entire life deep down inside knowing that Rachel was prettier than her. And that men wanted Rachel more than Leah, even though Leah was the oldest daughter. And all these events did was prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But what's worse than that, you see through the story that Leah actually fell in love with Jacob. Through all those events, she fell in love with Jacob. And guys, she desperately wanted Jacob to love her in return. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Doesn't say this explicitly, but I guarantee this happened. The only reason that Leah went through with Laban's plan that night was because Laban convinced Leah. He's like, Leah, if you go in there, if you'll go in there, he'll realize how much he loves you and not Rachel. I guarantee you that's why Leah went in there that night. So imagine what Leah felt the next morning when Jacob wakes up and he looks at her, and he realizes it's her, not Rachel. And he looks at Leah with utter disgust and hatred. I want you to watch carefully at what happens next. In Genesis twenty-nine thirty-one. God looked at that whole situation. In verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And so God looked down, he saw that this poor woman, Leah, was hated and he opened her womb. She was able to conceive, but Rachel, the beautiful one, was barren. Now listen to this, don't miss this. Through the whole story, throughout the whole whole story, Jacob will use Leah to bear him sons. But he never loves her. He never loves her. And so, with that in mind, I want you to look at verse 32, and I want you to listen to the longing of Leah's heart simply to be loved by Jacob. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, listen, for now my husband will love me. Do you see that? Jacob sleeps with her. She conceives a son. She names him Reuben and she takes the child and she dedicates him to Jacob saying, surely now that I've born him a son, he'll love me. But Jacob doesn't love her. So she tries it again. Genesis 29, 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Listen to that. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, her eyes are still on Jacob. She has another son. She names him Simeon, but her eyes are still on Jacob. You see this longing, this anticipation for Jacob to love her, but Jacob still doesn't love her. So she tries one more time. Verse 34. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. So Leah... The third son thought to herself, surely this time I have borne this man three sons. Now surely, Jacob, this time, surely he'll love me. Surely I will finally, after three sons, of everything I've done for him, all the longings of my heart will finally be satisfied and he will love me, but Jacob still didn't love her. And what happens next, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful and the most beautiful parts of the entire book that I hold in my handwriting. Leah conceives a fourth time. She bears Jacob, one final son. Now listen everybody look at me. I want you to look at the difference after the son is born of where she sets her gaze. After the son is born, I want you to look at the difference at where Leah directs the longings of her heart. Listen carefully. Genesis 29:35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah and then she ceased bearing. So Jacob has three sons with Leah. Leah bears him three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and all three she dedicates to Jacob. Everybody listen, check this out. But after three sons, she finally realizes Jacob is never going to love me. She realizes that the longings of her heart are never going to be satisfied by this man. So with her fourth son, whose name was Judah, she doesn't dedicate him to Jacob, she dedicates him to God. She said, I'm not looking at Jacob anymore to love me. So with this child, Judah, I will praise the Lord. And when she did that, when she turned her gaze off of man and had Judah, and she dedicated him to the Lord and said, with this child, I will praise the Lord, something utterly miraculous happened. The child named Judah that she dedicated to God would grow up and he would have a son. And Judah's son would have a son and Judah's grandson would have a son and his son would have a son and his son would have a son all the way down through the generations through the line of Judah would eventually be born another son that you might've heard of before. His name is Jesus. You ever wondered why they called him the Lion of Judah? That's it something hit me this week that i've never thought about before when you when people talk about the generational line of the messiah who do they always talk about abraham isaac and jacob abraham isaac and jacob and they're great they're awesome abraham isaac and jacob but they always get the credit for being the fathers of the line of the messiah and while that story is absolutely true they were the fathers of the line of the messiah what this story teaches us about what actually brought the Messiah into the world was one simple act of worship by an unloved woman. What an incredible story. God looked down at this lonely, wounded, used, abused woman who stopped looking at some man to fill the longings of her heart and instead placed her longing and her anticipation to the Lord and that one act of worship unleashed the power of heaven through her life. And through that one act of worship, that one simple act of worship, this one, God. Belongs to you. I'm going to praise you. Through that one simple act of worship, God brought into the world a Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Anticipation. The longing or the expectation of the fulfillment of a need or a desire. And so as we end today, I wonder if you would take just a second And I want you to think about maybe some of the things that your heart might be longing for this Christmas season. Maybe like Leah, for some of you, you're lonely or you're hurt and you just long to be loved. Maybe like me, um, it's been a crazy, hectic year and, and what you're longing for is just peace. Maybe you've been uh, dealing with depression. You've been dealing with sadness and you long for joy. You long for happiness once again. Maybe you're tired and you're weary and you are longing for rest. Or maybe, just maybe, you're, you're empty. And you don't know what you're longing for. All you know is you're longing for something. If that's you, I want you to remember that from the beginning, the Christmas story is a story of longings that have been fulfilled. Longings that have been fulfilled. Christmas is a story that reminds us that 2,000 years ago, God moved heaven and earth to come to you and to come to me and to forgive us of our sins, but not only that, but to fulfill the longings of our heart. And so today you have a choice. You got a choice. You can keep looking to all the stuff of the world to try to fill those desires that are in you, that God put in you, or like Leah, you can turn your gaze to God. Bring those longings to Him and say, God, this time, my eyes are on you, and I'm going to praise the Lord.